Hello and welcome to Nerd Night. My name is Anna. And I'm Chris. And this is the thing that we do. Nerd Night is usually a monthly talk series held in person at West Street Market, but since the pandemic, we decided to be true millennials and have turned this into a podcast. Topics can be on just about anything. As long as you're passionate about it, we're here for it. Chris, can you think of some of your favorite talks over the past year plus? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was the talk about Finding Bigfoot, which, you know, started with talking about the TV show, but quickly pivoted into what Finding Bigfoot would actually look like from like a scientific perspective. It was awesome. Uh, Of course, there was maybe the most practical talk of the entire series, which was designing the best party playlist. (laughs) A couple other of my favorites were Women Brewers, the history of the Black Lives Matter movement, and how sea slugs and David Bowie just have the same energy. (laughs) Like I said, we have turned Nerd Night from an in-person event into a podcast, um, and we serve as a platform to let you dive into whatever rabbit hole you are passionate about. You can reach us on our Facebook, our Instagram, or via our website, which is nerdnightreno.com. But today, we are super excited to be talking to Nick Zito about his love for bad movies in a talk that he is calling, For the Love of Sherlock, What Makes Good Bad Movies. Welcome, Nick. Hi. Hi. Good to be here. Um, so, Nick, can you introduce yourself to us? Yeah, sure. So, I'm Nick Zito. I am uh, currently uh, in a first year in the Integrative Neurosciences program at UNR, um, where I also did all of my undergrad where I studied neuroscience and mathematics. Um, Among general science that I'm interested in, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I love everything and anything. So when I was actually asked to pick a topic for this, I had about a thousand ideas. (laughs) It took me like a week to pick one. (laughs) So really, I was really excited to write it and I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So, okay. This is like kind of a general question that I have. I think that grad students, we're like naturally drawn to like diving into rabbit holes and like nerding out on any random subject. Do you Mm -hmm. agree? (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, from my own experience, I've like at least once a year, I'll get kind of, I'll fall down some sort of rabbit hole. A few years ago, it was pens. So I got really into like pens and, and what makes a good pen, which is why the writing kind, not the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, like this, um, gotcha. which is why I use this particular type of pen now. What kind of um, pen is that? It's a it's a Uniball Signo, uh, specifically the two hundred seven. And pro tip: if you buy the three hundred seven refills, they fit in the two hundred seven because the two hundred seven body is better than the three hundred seven. Oh so. my god, <laughs> this is going to be your next nerd night, right? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Do you think us grad students' willingness to go on rabbit holes for random things is why it takes us forever to finish grad school? <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah i'm Uh, I'm in my first year so don't ask me (laughs) (laughs) freaking rude dude (laughs) sick well let's dive into your talk
want to take you back to a memory. You're sitting at home, sick from school, and scrolling through the seemingly endless number of TV stations for something to watch. And after looking through all of the cool pay-per-view movies that you know your parents would kill you if you accidentally rented, you get somewhere into the four, five, maybe six hundreds, and you find a channel playing movies all day long. That's so cool, you think to yourself. I can just watch these movies all day. So you turn to the channel's first movie of the day, Masters of the Universe. You immediately and irrevocably regret your decision. Your parents made you watch Rocky IV at some point growing up, but now that Russian boxer is wearing weird combat gear, running around with a sword, and trying to defeat a man in a strange rubber mask. You're just a kid, but something tells you that this movie is bad. Really bad. So you turn off the TV and decide to do anything else other than waste your time on that movie. And you do. I think we all have a memory like this. For some, it was staying home on a sick day from school. For others, maybe it was hanging out with your high school buddies and going to see any movie that was out just because you could. Or maybe one of your roommates in college came in one night and said, y'all, we have to watch this movie. And you busted out the booze and settled into one of the worst pieces of cinema you've ever seen. In any case, I believe we all have a memory about experiencing our first bad movie. And for some of us, it sparked a lifelong passion to watch, critique, and above all, laugh at these poor, poor movies. I am one of these people, and I encourage everyone to go out and watch these amazingly bad films and appreciate them. But what is it about bad movies that appeals to us so much? Why sit through 90 minutes of pure schlock to go away saying, wow, that movie was bad, glad I just spent two hours of my life on it? And what are the differences between just a bad movie and a good bad movie? What makes me praise the esteemed films such as Samurai Cop, Death Wish 3, and Low Blow, but not the likes of X-Men Apocalypse, Pixels, and 2017's The Mummy? Today I want to dive into just that, and see if we can understand my and other people's appreciation and love for bad movies. What exactly makes a good bad movie? As a quick disclaimer, I will be discussing some spoilers for bad films and some good films too, so listeners beware. For this talk, I wanted to find some general themes and aspects of some of my favorite bad films to see if we could find a common denominator between these masterpieces. Ultimately, I came up with three main points that I feel make a good bad movie. First of all, they have to have glaringly apparent mistakes that almost anyone watching would notice and could correct themselves. The easiest of these mistakes to notice are some of the funniest at the time of watching, in my opinion. A boom mic is in the shot, someone who's not an actor is accidentally in frame for an entire scene, the actor is reading off the script. One of my favorite ever instances of this comes from the first ever bad movie I sat through in its entirety, Navy Seals Battle for New Orleans. There's a sequence where the characters are in a tense driving chase through the desolate and empty streets of Baton Rouge. Everyone from the town has been evacuated or become zombies at this point, so our heroes should be the only humans trotting around town. In one particular shot, as they are speedily driving down an empty road, we can plainly see in the background a family walking around doing their shopping. They're holding bags, looking fairly nice and non-zombified, and even look down the street to all the people with cameras just to see what all that noise is about. Had anyone, well looked down the lens while shooting, they would have noticed it, but no one did, and it's still one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a film. Other mistakes come after some reflection on the loosely connected ideas and stories that some of these films call their plot. Like the bell curve, some of the conclusions and story beats come contradictory to what the previous 70 minutes of film just showed you. In the classic Canuxploitation film Ryan's Babe, after two disorienting hours of non-linear editing and a man being shown time and time again that he should keep out of other people's business, our titular Ryan ends the film by picking up a hitchhiker that immediately gets him into trouble with the police. After weeks of being kidnapped, drugged, assaulted, and left for dead, our protagonist learns absolutely nothing and just 
keeps making the same mistakes he's always made. Is this supposed to be a hint at a deeper theme of doing what's right despite the consequences, or maybe that people don't really change in the end? Probably not, and that's just the way it should be. Other bad movies get around this type of plot problem by turning into weird action set pieces to distract you from all the poor writing and acting you had to endure to get here. The film Rock and Roll Nightmare, starring John Micklethor as John Triton as John Micklethor, is a great example of this. It starts as a strange slasher movie where a band goes to a secluded recording studio in Canada where demons slowly start picking off various members of the band and their girlfriends. After many scenes of slapstick rubber puppets attempts to kill our protagonist and his friends, John Micklethor's girlfriend turns into Beelzebub, and it's revealed that John Micklethor was actually an angel who created all his friends as an illusion to lure Beelzebub out of hiding. He then proceeds to fight a poorly made rubber puppet in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Where did that twist come from? Was it even hinted at in the movie? What even was the point of it? Apparently no one thought to read the script, or think about the plot at all, or try to insert this twist in a coherent and logical way. Instead, John Micklethor is an angel fighting Beelzebub, and every last second of that end fight makes the first two-thirds of the movie worth it. Hand in hand with our first point is the next important trait of good-bad films, the sincerity of the people involved in the making of the film. A quality bad movie has to come from a place of genuine care from the people making it. Everyone loves to hear people talk about what they work on and what they're passionate about, and movies are no exception. When those involved in making the film care about the project, it shows up on screen. Damien Chazelle, director of Whiplash and La La Land, does a fantastic job of this in both of the movies I've mentioned, casting actors and hiring teams that display true passion for the subjects of these films. But plenty of people can be passionate about something and give it their all. But that doesn't mean the end product will always be on par with these Academy Award winning films. What separates these good-bad films made with passion from just the plain good films made with that same level of drive? The answer is in the way they try to execute their vision. Let's take a look at some examples of good and bad films to get a better understanding of what's going on here. We'll start by looking at two independent films with a lot of passion from their respective writers. Written and directed by Martin McDonough, In Bruges is a story of two hitmen sent to the town of Bruges in the wake of a botched hit. It uses the historical significance of the city, beautiful cinematography, and deep introspective writing to tackle themes of guilt, redemption, personal principles, and the changing values of society with such precision and care that you feel bound to the stories of these characters. Made on a fairly low budget of only $15 million in 2008, it epitomizes the fact that good movies don't need large budgets to be good. On the other end of the spectrum, The Room, written and directed by Tommy Wiseau, has been flaunted as one of the worst movies of all time. On a budget of a little under half of In Bruges, $6 million in 2003, The Room has all of the equipment necessary to make a proper movie. It's shot on both film and digital, they hired a lot of real professionals to help shoot and edit the film, but there's something undeniably terrible about this movie. Script supervisors actively edited the script the day of shooting in order to make the dialogue more clear, if you can believe that. Entire storylines are dropped or picked up at random, and there is an entire separate book and movie on how this thing even came to be. But something undeniable is in this script. Tommy Wiseau truly, truly writes from a place of passion and experience. You can tell that he really believes that everyone betray him, and he puts that on the screen. While it is staggeringly awful, you can't deny that the passion and drive is there for him, and it elevates the whole film to a new level of schlock. Funnily enough, it's this underlying passion for the projects that pushes both of these movies over to a new level, albeit in opposite directions. Now, this phenomenon isn't just isolated to independent films with a budget. Sometimes filmmakers just make do with what they can. 
In the classic shot-on-video film Suburban Sasquatch, writer-director David Waskavage puts his heart into a story about environmentalism and the encroaching of man on nature, with a film that uses Halloween store props in a giant Bigfoot costume, with nipples and anatomically correct genitalia. He even took the time to personally animate the CGI in the film. From what I can tell, Waskavage probably spent about $2,000 on this movie, and the final product has much to be desired. There's a tarp cave, a talking fax machine, cops wear shirts with tape on them, the list goes on and on. But it's his passion and sincerity that drives this movie to the next level of good-bad. There are behind-the-scenes vlog bonus features of interviews with him and other people on the project, and it's amazing how much he cares about this movie. He talks about it like it's the shoe-in for best picture. He takes what he does so seriously, and just like before, it's that seriousness that elevates it to a new level by highlighting the ineptitudes of those making the project. Now, while independent films might seem to have a monopoly on these good-bad movies, they most certainly do not. There have been entire studios and production companies that have produced poorly made but somehow passionate and fun films for decades. The one that comes to mind for most people is Canon Films, best known for the Death Wish series, Masters of the Universe, and countless other action titles that plagued video rental stores in the 80s and 90s. Best explored in the documentary Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of Canon Films, we can see that the owners of Canon Films, Golan and Globus, absolutely showed a passion for producing movies. They would sell films at festivals for distribution before even making them. They signed contracts on napkins because they would get so excited about projects at a lunch meeting. It was that passion that made their films the classics they are today. This is the biggest difference between good bad movies and just bad movies in my opinion. When the creators of the project care, their incompetence shines through even brighter, and there is even more fun to be had by everyone. Everyone gets excited for a new Neil Breen movie, because it's funny to watch a man with no idea how filmmaking and CGI works attempt to put his thoughts about AI and technology on screen, not because he's good at it. When a studio pushes out a bad film, it's usually easy to tell that they were just trying to cash in on a trend. I almost guarantee you that no one involved on the Emoji Movie had a real passion for telling a unique and fun story about personal identity while also advertising heavily for Just Dance and Candy Crush. It's that level of seriousness and passion coupled with the other incompetence of the people behind the project that makes a good, bad film. Coupled together, these two points make a core tenet of good, bad films. Even if they are nonsense or strange, they're entertaining, even if they're not entertaining in the way the filmmakers intended. Errors are fun to spot. Passion is always visible on the screen. It's all there. If a bad movie has these things, it will be entertaining to watch, no matter who the audience is. But there is one undeniable truth about these films that might still put you off of watching them. They're bad. Why would anyone sit down and watch them? They're typically poor stories with bad cinematography and sloppy editing, so why sit through that when you can go watch a piece of cinema that has the time, thought, and effort put into it? That brings me to my last point, and to me, the most important one. What truly makes a bad movie good, on top of the other two points, is the group you watch the movie with. I think back to watching the first bad movie I ever saw, Navy Seal's Battle for New Orleans, and what I remember isn't necessarily the bad edits, or the strange plot, or the weird execution. It's my friend Lonnie and I repeatedly trying to sync up our Netflix streams because we had to pause so much we were laughing so hard. It's the weird and absurd drinking games my buddies and I would play while actively looking for certain hallmarks of bad films, and discussing the absurdities found within those movies afterwards. It's the sense of community you can get at a midnight showing of The Room, with everyone saying the lines and throwing spoons at the screen, or from watching one of the many online content creators like Red Letter Media watch and joke about these bad films. So when it's safe to, I recommend getting together with some friends, grabbing a few drinks and some food, and sitting down to discuss, tear apart, and laugh out loud at these weird movies that keep getting recommended to you on Netflix. Or head down to the Junkie Exchange and find a couple of good titles such as Gatorbait 2, or Italian Spider-Man, or anything else that looks bad that catches your eye. 
To quote from the Screen Rant podcast, a bad movie is a memory. A boring movie is forgettable. So go make a memory. We're going to take a quick commercial break and be back with more Nerd Night Reno. We are supported by Archive Wine Plus Beer. Whether you're looking to pair a drink with dinner or your next Dungeons & Dragons session, Archive has you covered with a thoughtful collection of wine and craft beers from family-owned wineries and independent breweries from around the world. Stop by Archive Wine and Beer today, located in West Street Market at 148 West Street. Okay, all right. So my first question. um, So I tend to find or I guess I noticed after listening to your talk that this kind of like it's so bad it's good culture is everywhere mm-hmm. like reality tv shows like dogs that are ugly and we think they're so ugly that they're cute or whatever um I'm wondering if you've thought about why we humans love ourselves a good train wreck <laughs> oh man there's there's so many different like avenues uh that you can go down with this question but I think one of the, like the key, you know, I the first thing I thought was like, okay, well for me it's fun, and then but I was like, that's a that's a bad answer. So why is it fun? You know, like what makes terrible things fun? Um, and I do what I normally do is I just threw the question into Google and I was like, why why do people like bad stuff? I wonder if anyone has actually studied it. Um, I wonder if other people have opinions, which of course they do. Um, but the best quote I found was actually from a, from a science uh, podcast on NPR. And I've, I'm going to just read this quote because I love it. Um, and it's, you try to reconstruct what went on in its creation. What's its history? What's its real nature? Um, so for, especially with bad movies, I, I love to think about who the hell made this? Why did they make Who wrote this? Who looked down the lens of the camera and said, this is a good shot, even though there's a boom here and there's a, there's a script supervisor in the background. The, the putting yourself in the mindset of the people making some of these things, I think is what makes a lot of it fun. Cause it's, it's almost a suspension of, of disbelief where it's like, okay, you know, I can kind of get put into this world, but how did they get to this world to begin with? Yeah, for sure. I was thinking like really pessimistically, like maybe it's that like, oh, at least I'm not that person. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, so I like that answer a lot better. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think part of it is that, um, you know, I think it's, it's a combination of trying to see whether or not they were actually aware of what they were doing versus like, or, or were they just completely clueless with whatever they were doing, you know, where I look at something like, um, like I mentioned in the talk, like suburban Sasquatch, where Mm -hmm. you look at the behind the scenes features and Dave Wascavage is talking about this movie. Like, like it's the next big thing. Like it's just something he puts so much time and passion into. And then you watch it and it's quite literally like a guy in a, in like a gorilla suit, like a poorly made gorilla suit with giant nipples. And you just, (laughs) And, and in, in some of the behind the scenes, you just see like a swinging phallus and you're like, did they really think that this was art? Did they, <laughs> you know, and, or, or, or did they think at the time, like, oh yeah, no, this is going to be hilarious. Um, and you, it, you can't tell. And it, I think that, that part, that's part of it. And I, I think another, another thing is just like how absurd that, you know, what, 
this because this isn't limited to movies. We can talk about books. We can talk about TV shows, specifically reality shows. You look at it and you go, do people actually live like this or are they just playing a character? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of leads into my second question or. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, like the, I don't know, the weird Sasquatch stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, all right. Um, you talk a good amount about how these um, creators are, are very intentional and, like, sincere in what they're making. Yeah. And I'm wondering if movies that are made to be bad hold kind of the same spot for you. Or if, like, you get as much joy out of intentionally bad movies or just like maybe not bad but just like intentionally ridiculous movies <laughs> yeah for me it's a very very fine line so something like sharknado or just like anything asylum makes in general i i don't find them very fun because they play kind of too much into that self-awareness like there's there's there has to be a level of of cluelessness <laughs> when when making something that makes it more fun for me personally Certain companies like Troma, who made the Toxic Avenger um, and just kind of produce thousands of independent films, I think they do a really good job of this, where they're kind of aware that they're not a big budget studio, but they do the best with what they have, and they have fun while making it, you know? And a lot of it is is more camp than it is kind of self-aware garbage, if, if I could phrase it that way. Yeah, and you're not going to get as many, like boom mics in the shot or whatever in right kind of yeah yeah something like sharknado like they they fully rely on cheap graphic design they fully rely on you know just everyone playing up the characters because it's funny to watch people do that but they don't they they miss kind of the elements that that make these bad movies really great like an actor with that has a big name that gets hired onto the project for some reason and they decide to just have as much fun as possible while playing a character right where it's missing some of those those core elements for me personally some people really love it I, th I think these movies are tailored to the audiences that they want to be and i'm just i'm personally just not part of that kind of audience what do you think of uh deep blue sea oh lord um okay let me let me let me make sure I'm remember. this is the shark movie yep where they're in like an ocean like research lab and they have sharks and tanks, right? That's it. Okay. Um, boy, I just, that kind of, <laughs> I'm just thinking about it. It's, it's funny because I think with something like deep blue sea that comes more down to the writing being mm -hmm. terrible. And I personally love terrible writing because to me, when you make a movie, right? I don't, I, I'm not personally a film major. I, I knew people who went into film and things like that. But, you know, when you make a movie, you like read the script. And sometimes you just read, see some of these movies and you're like, did no one read this? Did anyone like sit down and proofread it? One of my favorite big budget bad movies to come out recently is, uh, is Venom. Because you watch that movie and you go, did anyone read the script <laughs> or think about the continuity of anything? And the answer is probably no. And that's what makes it fun. You know, it's like all these people working on it. None of them thought to reread the script after the second draft. And that's, it's great. I love, I love that kind of thing. Um, I don't know if either of you have heard of Rudy Ray Moore at all. No. Is that a human? <laughs> yes. Rudy Ray Moore was, uh, was a staple of the, of the exploitation genre of the, you know, mm. kind of seventies, eighties, nineties. He made movies literally all the way until he died. 
Um, but he's he's most known for his Dolomite character, and there's a there's a kind of biopic on Netflix starring Eddie Murphy called My Name Is Dolomite that kind of shows the rise of Rudy Ray Moore and how he did it. Um, and really, like how Rudy Ray Moore made movies is he went, I have this character that I do on stage that I have fun with. I have all these people who are creative who want to write and have fun. So we're just going to write and have fun movies and then sell them to theaters independently until they eventually get picked up for for redistribution. You know, the writing is bad. The action is bad. Like there's, he, he rhymes and does Kung Fu. That's kind of his shtick. And it's all bad. Like, like it's punches that whiff by like three feet. It's a guy, it's cutting to a stunt actor who looks nothing like Rudy Ray Moore doing his stunts. Um, you know, and it's, it's the kind of fun that they had that makes those movies funny, less so like the seriousness of the plot. Like for example, in uh, Petey Wheatstraw, the opening sequence is like a woman giving birth to like an eight-year-old kid and also a watermelon. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's just like, they're trying to have as much fun making this movie as they can because they're spending all this money on it. Why not make it a good time? I think that that's kind of what separates that from like Sharknado where everyone's like, all right, let's put it on sci-fi and get a few hundred thousand people to be like, what the hell is this movie on Twitter? You know, do you think it's like bad writing or like the more like the visual aspect? Like what, what do you think like is more important to making a bad movie? I think when you're watching a movie in the moment, it's some of the technical aspects. So things like certain in-camera editing shots. And if you don't know what that is, it's um, where filmmakers shoot the shots in order rather than what makes sense in terms of a production, because it'll save them time in editing later. <laughs> because it's easier to, you know, shoot this shot and then just cut the bad takes than just, you know, film it in, in proper, you know, production order. So like technical aspects like that, I think in the moment are, are hilarious. You know, there's a movie called Partners made by a, an actual film professor, which is just it's god awful. They really they wrote a 45 minute script and then tacked on another 45 minutes. But there's a shot where like there's like a production or, or a script assistant walking around in the background and like running to get out of shot and it's hilarious. But I think afterwards like when you're done watching the movie, it's the discuss it's the writing that makes the like the discussion of the movie even better, right? Cuz it's one thing to laugh at a boom being in shot or or just like someone like accidentally covering the lens <laughs> while they're shooting. But afterwards, it's like the two hours of discussion where you're like, how the hell did they think that the A would lead to W instead of B? You know, I think in combination, they all kind of work together to make a wonderfully terrible movie. Uh, when you were talking about the, like having the boom mic in the shot, I cannot remember the movie for the life of me. But there is a movie where there's a guy on a motorcycle and in the background, there's just someone tossing a dog into water. Yes, that's a that's a oh, man, I, I've seen this clip and it's hilarious. It's it's like fucking wild. Like, did they? I guess no one noticed this. Also, why are you doing that to a dog, you son of a bitch? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's it like that guy is terrible, but it makes for a really funny gif on loop. <laughs> yes, it's beyond like leaving your Starbucks cup on the. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, how dare yeah. you invoke Game of Thrones right now? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about bad things, so... <laughs> I mean... That's true. God, okay, so I have this issue with uh, movie ad or, like, film ad adaptations of, like, books mm -hmm. where when they're not true to the original, I just hate it. Like, I can't stand yeah. it. And, like, Game of Thrones 
for me was that like they just started making all these decisions. It's just like fucking why? Like why are you doing this? Yeah, I mean sometimes studios really just want to push out a product. the The third Spider Man movie, uh, the third Tobey Maguire Spider Man movie, was is an example of this where the studio was like, "Put Venom in the movie." put Venom in the movie, we want Venom in the movie. And Sam Raimi absolutely did not want to do that, but he he had to. Um, so to an extent, it's like just kind of push something out for the sake of making money rather than good artistic integrity. The Hobbit movies also, I hate the Hobbit movies. Oh, mm-hmm. word. word. Yeah, I, there's a really funny picture I've seen where it's like the Hobbit movies and it's like a picture of a horse, like a drawing of a horse. And the first one is like a really nice detailed horse. And the second one is like a middle schooler drew it. And then the last one is like a fourth grader drew it, you know, or just it's like progressively worse because they don't necessarily care about that. You know, they care about tying it into what exists and getting people what they can recognize. Well, so, okay. Chris has been trying to get me to read the Dune books (laughs) (laughs) and I just have so much hesitancy and reluctance for these reasons. Like, I don't want to be horribly disappointed by these movies. Right. Yeah. I think. And if I don't have that expectation of like, this is what it needs to be going in, mm-hmm. then I don't know. I can usually stomach it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, book adaptations of, or movie adaptations of books are particularly difficult because a book is just, we're talking about two completely different mediums, right? You know, um, you know, as much as Zack Snyder tries to make comic books on the screen, they're still different. You know, there's a reason why Watchmen works as a graphic novel and the movie mm-hmm. is like horribly inept in tackling its themes, you know? So translating from medium to medium is really, really difficult. And I think a lot of fans, a lot of the time don't give studios credit for doing what they do. Right. Um, because the flaws are, are glaring when you're, when you're translating a medium. So, so to do something like that takes a, a team of really dedicated workers working for years and years and years to get it right. Um, and to condense it, right. Cause a book, like you can sit down with a book for what, like weeks, you know, reading it and going through it and you reread it and you go, Oh man, I completely missed this theme or, Oh, I, I missed the nuance of this character. How do you put that in, in 90 minutes of film? It's, it's incredibly difficult. So I think it's in combination, it's like, okay, you have to realize it's hard to translate these things to a different medium, but you know, you, you also have to hope that the team behind it doesn't just completely butcher what they were given to begin with. Well, speaking of Watchmen, I thought that the TV show, they like let go of the expectations that, you know, they had when they were making the movie of like, we're just going to do like a shot for shot remake of this graphic novel. And I thought, or, well, you know, we're going to try. <laughs> and I thought that this, the TV show was pretty good. I mean, that it was, you know, not set in a different universe, but, you know, it, it was far enough apart from the original that I thought it worked. Right. Yeah. I have yet to see the, the Watchmen show because I, I, I actually just got HBO Max uh, two weeks ago to watch the Godzilla versus Kong. So oh, I, yeah. I, have yet to, I have yet to tackle into that. So. Okay, so hot takes on Godzilla versus Kong. <laughs> oh, I absolutely loved it. I mean, it was it it, it looked at the stupidity of of Kong Skull Island because I hadn't seen Skull Island before because I knew it was bad, um, and it was terrible. There was there was twenty minutes of good film, uh, and that's about it. My favorite shot was when uh, the very highly trained Vietnam helicopter pilots 
are just gunning at Kong and driving at him for some, you're flying at him for some reason. And then they try to do a pincer move for some reason. And then they gun each other down. It's great. It's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Um, but you look at like Godzilla versus Kong and they just went, okay, let's take the stupidity of Kong Skull Island and let's just make it kind of Pacific Rim-esque. And that it was perfect in that regard. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a huge Godzilla fan. This is That's what my half sleeve is. Um, like they don't, people don't want a human story, right? And I think this kind of goes hand in hand with, with when you make an intentionally bad film, you're playing it to a specific audience, right? You're making it for people who like bad movies, who like schlock, who like do this particular thing, but maybe an audience that isn't as familiarized with it as, as like the hardcore fans of like the room or Miami connection or things like that. But when you make like a Kaiju film, like people just want to watch giant stuff, punch giant stuff and (laughs) cities get destroyed. Right. I think that's why Pacific Rim, the first one works as well as it does. I think that's why Kong versus Godzilla works. Um, or Godzilla versus Kong. But yeah, I, th- I think it's it's knowing what, what the audience is and playing it to them in in a way that, that doesn't fully patronize them at the same time. Yeah, when we were watching it, I can't remember if it was you, Chris, or, or Trevor, but like at one point, one of you guys is yelling, like, too much dialogue, monster <laughs> fight now. <laughs> that was me, probably. I thought this was the best of the Godzilla movies as far as like uh, getting rid of the humans, but... God damn mm-hmm. it. There's still too many humans. I want it set on, <laughs> on, on Godzilla Island or whatever. I didn't just have all the monsters fighting each other. Oh, you mean you didn't like the part where uh, a kid who took an HTML course tried to hack Mechagodzilla? That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they like, killed Mechagodzilla by spilling, what, whiskey on it or whatever? Oh, yeah. They, they, they like, knock a drink on it. And they're like, fuck it, right? Um, yeah, I mean... I, Sorry, everybody. Yeah. I could talk about that movie for days. I mean, I wrote my thoughts as I... I was not uh, sober while I watched it. Neither so were we. I, so I, I was writing my thoughts as I went. And just, like... They went full Hollow Earth. Oh, yeah. Like, they did not care what they were going with it. And that that's what I felt like I loved so much about that movie. It's They didn't care about what the story was. They just needed plot points to get you there and it did that and it was great i also loved how uh hollow earth was i don't know if either of you noticed this but when they get to hollow earth it's like a it's like a disc in the middle of the earth right so if you look at the skyline the mountains meet this way but if you're in if you're in the interior of a sphere mountains would meet in every direction the world would be oh man the world would be round like just on the out but on the shell they didn't that's care about like a, that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like a next level of detail that I didn't care about. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Like notice. most people aren't going to notice it, but for me, I was like, "So, so you go to the middle of the Earth and no, it's a flat beautiful. disc in the corner." <laughs> um, but, but if, if you believe in a flat Earth, then <laughs> oh my God. there you go. Yeah, there you go. So this movie plays to all audiences. <laughs> <laughs> there, like, there's like multiple versions of so get so bad it's good. There's like the accidental version where they tried to make a good movie and it just ended up being bad, but still charming. Mm-hmm. I think it's, there's like this other kind of like fine line of like people intentionally make these movies to be kind of bad, like Sharknado, but like, they're also good. Like, I guess like, have, have you seen the guest? Uh, oh, man, not in a long time. <laughs> yeah. It's like this movie where like, it's making fun of all these eighties campy things. You have this like slasher type character, um, and it's like so, it's such cheese, but I think that was 100% the intention. 
And I was wondering if you have something like that that you enjoy that kind of uh, fits that bill. You know, it, there's so many things that I just enjoy, in especially when it comes to cinema. So I, I went to a career tech school, and one of the majors we had was film. Even though I did IT, I had a bunch of friends in film. So we would watch movies and, and talk about them all the time. And what, what I've learned personally is like, just whatever enjoyment you can get out of a film, just take it, right? Just don't don't care about who does what. Don't care about, you know, X, Y, Z or what this person thinks or what, what how many stars Roger Ebert gave it. Just go into a movie and enjoy it. Um, so I, you know, there, there are some bad movies that I, or movies that are intentionally bad that I'm like, uh, it's not great. And some movies that come off just like, oh my God, I can't believe this was even put into production that I absolutely love. Just go find enjoyment in movies wherever you can. For me, it's just everything and anything in films. Just go find that enjoyment because that's what there are. They're just entertainment for you to have fun watching or suspend your disbelief. You know, sometimes they are art pieces. Watch something like Black Klansmen where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you're, you're talking about this, these, these issues of systemic racism and, and all these very deep topics. And then you have uh, Gator Bait 2, which is a sequel made 10 years after the original movie. And the cover is a woman with barely any clothes holding a shotgun in one hand and a snake in the other, right? Who <laughs> cares? Yeah. It's just it's just an art medium, you know. Go enjoy it for what it is. Sick. I think I think we should end on that note. I, I do too. You, That's great. I think you gave us a beautiful takeaway. Uh, thanks so much, Nick. This was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of fun too. <laughs> by singer-songwriter John Amadon. If you want to give a talk, reach out to us on our Facebook, Instagram, or on nerdnightreno.com. Like, wh- oh, okay, never mind. I'm sorry, I just fucked up the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's it's done. We should just like destroy my, it now. <laughs> my brain my brain is dead.